If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie. Our scripture lesson comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 11, verses 24 through 30. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 elders of the people and placed them all around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. Two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among the registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, one of his chosen men, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. I know, I can hear you from here. Not the wilderness again, preacher. That is so last liturgical season. We did the wilderness in Lent, all 5,273 days that Lent seemed to last. The metaphor of the wilderness is done. We are over the wilderness. And I really feel that. Talking about the wilderness makes me feel a little twitchy at this point. Nevertheless, the Bible persists. So the wilderness is where the text puts us this Sunday. But also, the scripture that we read on Pentecost traditionally comes from Acts, and it begins, When the day of Pentecost had come, They were all together in one place. Nope, not this Pentecost, so wilderness it is. Besides, this is an early story of the movement of the Spirit, which is the main story of Pentecost. Numbers, 
despite the name, is actually quite narrative in form. This is probably why in Hebrew the book is called Bimidar, which translates in the wilderness, a word in the first verse of the book and perhaps a more appropriate title given its contents. The book begins with the Israelites encamped in the wilderness of Sinai and spans the 40 years of wandering and it ends on the east side of the Jordan River looking toward a new future. But per usual, we must back up a bit before we get to the verses we actually read. It is a story that we are already familiar with. We are on the tail end of the common motif in the journey of ancient Israel. The people grumble because of the hardship of their life in the wilderness. They long for the settled life of Egypt and regret that they left what was familiar to make the dangerous trek through the unknown. Moses intercedes with the Lord on behalf of the people, and the Lord responds. We heard this motif back in March, a story early in the exodus into the wilderness when the people grumbled about their great thirst. Moses took the complaint to God, and God responded by telling Moses to gather the elders of the community and then strike a rock with his staff, out of which would come water for the people. And theologian Terence Freetham reminded us that the wilderness is a challenge for those who live in it, but there is water coursing through its rock formations. There are resources for life provided by God in the midst of desolate places in the wilderness. These resources just need to be discovered. And indeed, in the two and a half months it's been since we read that story, we too have seen that the wilderness is a challenge, but that we are not without a community of wisdom, lived experience, and creativity, that these are the resources for life provided by God in the midst of this wilderness. The text we read today comes just after another episode of the people grumbling. This time the people were complaining, saying, if only we had meat to eat, surely it was better for us in Egypt. Turns out this is slightly irritating to God. And her response is a bit salty. The Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall not eat only one day, or two days, or five days, or 10 days, or 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nose and becomes loathsome to you. So there. I mean, okay, like the last two words aren't actually in the text, but the rest of it is. And God is clearly over it because the conversation ends with God asking a rhetorical question in verse 23, paraphrased, is this not something I can do? It is the divine version of the rhetorical question, does a bear poop in the woods? The next verse is where we picked up the story. And you might be thinking that's strange because what we read seems to have nothing to do with the people's complaint. We actually have to skip to verse 34 to hear that the people do get their fill of meat to eat. 
the episode we read about God's spirit being given to the 70 elders so that they prophesy, and then to Eldad and Medad, who are deemed unauthorized for the spirit of prophecy, but get it anyway, this episode seems to interrupt the narrative. There hasn't actually been resolution, even if God has thrown down the rhetorical question and left no room for wondering about the outcome. We haven't been told that the meat does arrive. That story is interrupted by this one, a story about the Spirit of God moving among a whole mess of people. It turns out that the book of Numbers is full of these interruption stories, or as theologian Richard Boyce calls them, little extras, such as the ordering of the tribes at the beginning of Numbers and the apportionment of property at the end, these little extra stories appear about the tribe of the Levites or the daughters of Zelophehad that may have more to tell us about God and God's people than the major story. So it is with this extra story about Eldad and Medad. To be honest, this sermon was supposed to be about that extra story, a story that warns against trying to control and box in the movement of the Spirit, an encouragement for all of us to be prophets. For that's what happens in this extra story. It's a good one about shared leadership and responsibility. It's particularly important for a church in the middle of transition, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of figuring out how to empower each other to bring the world closer to justice and peace. But this week, the sermon writing process was interrupted early by a story of white supremacy. And then it was interrupted again by another story about white supremacy, and then it was interrupted again about another story about white supremacy. On Monday, Amy Cooper, a white woman, had her dog unleashed in Central Park. Christian Cooper, a black man and a bird watcher, asked her to leash her dog, as is required by law. She frantically called the police on Christian Cooper, and told them that a black man was threatening her life. All of it was on video. There was not a threat to Amy Cooper's life. She was offended that a black person would dare tell her to follow the rules. She knew what would happen to him when she called the police. We all know. We know because later that day, George Floyd, an unarmed black man died after being handcuffed and pinned to the ground by a white police officer who used his knee to crush Mr. Floyd's neck. That's why Amy's phone call could have been lethal. We know what could have happened because in February, Ahmaud Arbery was killed by white men who said he did not comply with their instructions. These men lynched Ahmaud Arbery, because they believe white people can command black people what to do. And even though the murder was filmed, they still almost got away with it. Remember, authorities didn't make arrests because they saw the tape, 
but because we saw the tape. We know what could have happened to Christian Cooper because of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old black boy who was lynched in 1955 after Carolyn Bryant said he had made advances to her in the grocery store. Carolyn later said she had been lying, just like Amy Cooper was lying when she said her life had been threatened by a bird watcher asking her to obey the law. The truth is that these are not extra stories. They are not interruptions, not to my sermon writing or to this country. They are the main story. Racism in America is the story, and it has not been interrupted. Amy Cooper has since apologized, saying, I am not a racist, because this is what white people, especially white progressives, this is what we are most worried about, being called racist. But racism is not something we are, it is something we do. Author Ibram Kendi reframes it rightly for us. He says, we are surrounded by racial inequity, as visible as the law, as hidden as our private thoughts. The question for each of us is, what side of history will we stand on? A racist is someone who is supporting a racist policy by their actions or inaction, or expressing a racist idea. An anti-racist is someone who is supporting an anti-racist policy by their actions, or expressing an anti-racist opinion. Racist and anti-racist are like peelable name tags that are placed and replaced based on what someone is doing or not doing, supporting or expressing in each moment. These are not permanent tattoos. No one becomes a racist or anti-racist. We can only strive to be one or the other. We can unknowingly strive to be a racist. We can knowingly strive to be an anti-racist. Like fighting an addiction, being an anti-racist requires persistent self-awareness, constant self-criticism, and regular self-examination. To be an anti-racist is a radical choice in the face of American history, requiring a radical reorientation of our consciousness. My colleague, the Reverend Chris Moore, compared race, the racism so deeply rooted in our psyches as citizens of the United States to a crepe myrtle that you don't want in the yard. It is almost impossible to get rid of as soon as you think that the roots are gone, a shoot breaks the soil. Just when you think you've got it completely dug up and eliminated, it sprouts up again in another place. Weeds fester. And when you think that you've shared the right articles, you've held the proper number of shared pulpit series with the black church across town, and you've celebrated Black History Month, it can be daunting to see that racism still exists. But there is hope. You, we, are a garden. And the only one you and we can properly weed is yourself, ourselves. There's an article posted to the church's Facebook page 
with a list of suggestions on how to interrupt the narrative of racism right now. Don't just read it. Pick one and do it. Then pick another and do it. And then keep doing those things. Here at home, we must work harder for justice for Julius Jones, who you should Google if you aren't familiar with his name. We must keep up the pressure to get rid of 287G contracts that reinforce negative stereotypes and incentivize racial profiling while terrorizing the Latinx community. And we must dismantle a system in which 26% of Oklahoma's incarcerated population is black, even though African Americans make up only 7% of Oklahoma's total population. We are going to have to be the interruption, church. We are going to have to be the interruption, white Christians. We are going to have to bear witness, intervene, listen, confess, repent, and then do anti-racism. So let us be the interruption. Let us write the little extra, the one that has to tell us about God and God's people in a way that is different and more than the main story. A permanent interruption that says, Black Lives Matter. Let it be so. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Lori Walkie, Associate Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. Mayflower also has a full church school for children of all ages available during the 11 a.m. service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.